Windows. The Bucks got all the right steps in Charleston. They now can try their slipper and see if it fits at the big ball. These Tennessee State Buccaneers, they're dancing, boys. Hunter Muscaro, Perea lays it up. 1.4. Perea hits it. The pass is caught. Ready for the game winner. Wide left. Bucks win. Nothing spotting for three. The place is going to erupt. Oh, Deuce Bello. He's going to make Sports Center with an incredible. Jarvis Jones, the game winner, got it. Ball game. East Tennessee State's going to leave. They got him. If he catches it, it's over. Ball game. Touchdown, Jawan Stinson. 25 yards. J.J. German for the win. He got it. J.J. German and the Bucks have shocked the Bulldogs. And the sidekick. Say hello to my little friend. What's your name, man? I told you. It doesn't matter what your name is. You're handsome. You have the perfect amount of scruff. And you still have no talent. It's Sandos and the Sidekick on the Buccaneers Sports Network. Good Wednesday, Jay Sandos, Mike Gallagher. Another exciting edition of Sandos and the Sidekick, getting you ready for ETSU and Wofford tonight at 7 o'clock with the Bucs a chance to wrap up at worst. They share the conference championship, and uh, it would be the number one seed no matter what. They would hold all the tiebreakers with the top two teams, Furman, UNCG. So if they win tonight, for sure, share the championship and for sure, number one seed. But we heard head coach Steve Forbes talk about he's uh, very selfish. He ain't into sharing that much. Wants that solo title. Doesn't want anyone to have a piece of it aside from himself in the box, and I don't blame him. I mean, to be able to get that all on your own is a feather in the cap. I think that Anytime you're talking to people around college basketball, specifically coaches, you're going to hear pretty much the same thing. Also, a little bit later, we're going to do the mid-major top 25, of course. That's after we dive into getting way ahead of ourselves, of course, of course as we usually do. That's what we do. Bracket talk with Bracketville's own Dave Amon. And if you haven't heard of Bracketville, that's fine. It's a WordPress site. Bracketville.wordpress.com. So you're saying, okay, well, who, what Joe Schmo are you pulling out to bring on the show? Number one across the last five years combined of bracket projections across the entire internet. So he's no Joe Schmo. In fact, he's a level above Joe Lenardi. In fact, he's many levels above Joe Lenardi because Joe Lenardi is number 55, according to Bracket Matrix in those same rankings. So number one across all of the internet, Dave Amon of Bracketville, like a 25-minute conversation about all things Bucks, a few things on the SoCon, how his formula maybe differs from some others, what he looks at. And I thought he gave us a really good look inside what matters and what doesn't. I taped this yesterday, so you had a chance to listen to it, and I'm quite sure you found a few nuggets in there that you believe would be valuable as well. Yeah, I, I thought it was interesting, uh, you know, sort of the thought. Pro- and, again, he spent a lot of time and effort, and that's something I've tried to do last year and this year is try to talk to people that I know who have been on the committee and Commissioner Jim Schaus has been. So I've tried to pick his brain. I've tried to pick other people's brains to figure out what it matters, uh, what it does. It's interesting that he's going to say some of the similar, and I won't give some of it away, but he's going to give away some of the things that uh, Schaus has told me. He's also said some things that, that – I think that Jim Schaus thought was important that he doesn't think is that important. So it's interesting to see. And ultimately he said, uh, well, I I don't want to give it, but basically just, you know, I, the beholder of who's on the committee at the time or whatever, and you're at the mercy, there's, there's a human element. And at some point in time, do they just look at each other and say, who's better? Right. And and that's what it comes down to. Who, who is better people? Let's, let's, let's step aside from all this other stuff. We've gotten matrix to get us to three teams. We need one. 
in this room, who do you think beats the other two teams? I thought it was interesting he kind of downplayed all the metrics and really just looked more at the, like you said, the the human element side of it. And, again, I kind of – you hear so many things about numbers and computer, you know, base projections, all this stuff, and you're like, okay, well, it's easy to get wrapped up in that. But then when you hear someone that's had so much success projecting these things – and he says, yeah, you know, I've had a break or two here and there, but over five years, that's a pretty big sample size. So anyway, uh, I'm not going to pump the guy up too much. You can listen for yourself, decide for yourself, as the committee will also. Um, and, of course, he's going to have a few things, I think, differ from other people that would talk about their projections. But considering he's number one across the Internet the last five years, I think a pretty solid indicator and a pretty good idea coming from a very reliable source of what's coming. And, and will defend himself, unlike uh, Joseph Lenardi, who refuses to get back to us. True. Booty cakes. 54 yeah. behind. Anyways. Well, yeah, 54 spots down. Honey. All right, Whatever. so we're, we're going to talk to Dave. Uh, second segment. Again, Mike said he got a chance to talk to him yesterday. College Obviously, basketball 20, fun fest. 24 solid minutes. It really was. It was 24 solid minutes. I actually listened to it a, about a time and a half. I made it through the first half the second time. And then got hung up, so I may listen to the second half again as well. Matter of fact, I'm driving to Wofford. Got plenty of time. Listen to it again. Uh, And then third segment, you said it, mid-major top 25. So there we go. Etish Wofford. We're talking bracketology. We're talking, of course, we're media folks. We're going to do that. And then we're going to talk mid-major top 25 where my, uh, I don't think it was a bold prediction, but... uh, it won't count as a loss, but clearly I, I think I swung and missed on something. Oh, you mean this? Well, no, no, the no, Bucks no, no. can Just, beat Furman and Sanford yeah, this yeah, week. Lady. I question to I you. I knew you were going to do that. Should the Zags lose to San Francisco or number 23 BYU, does ETSU get any first place votes in the College Insider Mid-Major Top do, 25? Do you? Yes. But do, do, do you? I mean, get a I'm vote surprised. or two. I, I mean, don't you know. don't think you'll get a vote or two? They'll get a vote or two. Yeah, I don't know. Turns out I didn't know. Man, we'll get to more of that later. Are you done? Oh, we'll play it again during the oh, segment. I knew, yep. I knew it. I knew. As soon as I said it, I kind of felt like that. Jogged my memory. Thanks. Yeah, they probably I just would have completely spaced, but I, know it, I appreciate it. All right, well, let's talk ETSU Wofford. And the first thing I want to start with ETSU Wofford was the 49-48 game in which something happened that I would like to say I've never seen in my career and, and I, at any level. It was the starting five did not score 0 for 14. Did not score in the first half. I still don't think I've, – I've actually tried to think and look and found games that were off – and even games where ETSU gave up like 12 to non-division one, they had starters score. I've never seen starters not score. And if it wasn't for Messiah Jones, who had 10 first-half points, he ended up with 18, career high, and Isaiah Bigelow, who had eight. If it wasn't for those guys, there would be no points. So they combined for 18 points in the first half – and I've just I've never seen that in my entire life. That was probably, and it was ugly both ways offensively. And it came down fitting to a defensive play in a 49-48 game for ETSU to pick up the win on a strip steal by Isaiah Tisdos seemed to do everything. Very fitting person to do that, it seems like. What was shocking to me in the game, and you and me have talked about off-air, on-air, my feelings about Nathan Hoover. I just don't think he's any good, uh, quite honestly. I think he's a very good role player, and when he has to be elevated into a position where he is one of your top two or three scorers, um, specifically this year top two, uh, he's in trouble. And he showed that in game one. I thought ETSU did just an excellent job. I do like Storm Murphy. Uh, and the fact that you held Nathan Hoover and Storm Murphy to three for 23 combined, really Wofford wouldn't have been in the game if it wasn't for Messiah Jones' 18 points, which did tie a career high, still is tied for his career high. No one else with more than eight three of 23 from the field for uh, Hoover and Murphy Uh, just incredible that they were able to do that against two 
certainly dangerous players. Now, I'm not going to say that Nathan Hoover, I'm not going to take all of the credibility away from his game, and I'm not going to tear him down a ton because he does have the tendency to blow up on a given night, right? And there's a lot of players that can do that. He maybe tends to do so um, more often by a slim margin than, uh, you know, three or four on a championship team. Uh, third or fourth option on a championship team. I still just don't think he's necessarily a viable guy uh, day in and day out. Now, that being said, it does seem like that ETSU game was a little bit of a wake-up call for him. He went one for 11 that day, one for 11, so three of 22 combined, I should say, between those two. No less than four field goals made since after that game versus ETSU. That was the fourth time that he had made three field goals or less to that point since, again, has not done that. So I think that he's been better lately. There was a big game where I think he went like 11 for 15 and really lit it up. But from aside from that game, I should say, really you're at about 30 35% during that stretch. So the shooting hasn't necessarily gotten all that much better but he has mixed in a game or two where he's been really solid and hasn't had any of the big clunkers like he did against DTSU. Well, he's only had two games where he has not hit a three. Uh, one was at Duke, 0 for 7. I think you could probably Fair. give a pass on that. And ETSU, 0 for 6. And, you know, the game in between there, Kennesaw 5 for 12 solid. The game after, he shot 40% from 3, 4 of 10, then 4 of 9. So he, he's starting to get back in a groove. But the last four games, 2 of 11, 2 of 10, 3 of 13, 3 of 11, all from 3. So uh, under 25%. He's actually closer to about 22% just in those four games. And so he's had some struggles. And I've got a theory, and I've said this on the podcast. I've said it on air. I think if you have to wait to your senior year to be the guy, you are not the guy. I, I, I just – I don't believe – I haven't – I've seen very few, and there are – Outliers are occasions where guys wait their quote-unquote turn and the senior year, the ball's handed to you, and you can become the guy. And I think you could look at, uh, you know, people could argue DeSante Bradford probably because he was a role player up till senior year. You could argue a few other guys. But my thing is, if you are having to wait to a senior year to be the guy, you're probably not. The other thing is, is I think Hoover's had to adjust how he's getting shot. So he... Other than the last four games, he's done a, a better job of taking about 50% of his shots from two and from three to figure out because people are focusing in on him so much, he's got to figure out, sort of like Trey Boyd, he's got to figure out different ways to score. I mean, he took 25 shots at Greensboro, 13 of them were from three, and then he kind of backslides Furman. He took 11 threes and only five two-point shots, and so... He seems to have been more successful, like the 11 for 15 game you're talking about was Chattanooga, career high 31 points, and he took nine three-pointers, just five of nine, and then was quite honestly pretty good from two, uh, from that point, four of six, I think it is from two. So uh, when he's been a little closer towards the 50-50 or he's taking close to the same numbers of twos and threes, he seems to have had some pretty good days. When he is taking pretty much all threes, again, uh, there's a couple of games where he's 2 for 11 from the floor, 2 of 10 from 3, 3 of 11 from the floor, 1 of 9 from 3. So you're starting to see, like, there, there's some situations where it seems like when he's been a little more dynamic and not just trying to stand out there and shoot threes, he's been a little more successful. But I think teams have clearly focused in on Hoover, and sometimes it's about matchups. Nathan Hoover's only averaging six points against ETSU in his career. And, and I mean, a large 
sample size, too. He has played in eight games. He is averaging 33 minutes a game. Wow. With eight games. So it's not like he's not getting an opportunity. I think I misspoke. He's averaging eight points a game. I'm sorry. He's averaging eight points a game. But for his career, he is averaging 12 points a game. So that's four under what he's averaging. And considering he's averaging 16 points this year, he's averaging half uh, for what he's doing this year compared to ETSU. And he just had the two points against ETSU. And even on the flip side, Storm Murphy, who I agree, I, I think he's a much more talented and can do more things than Nathan Hoover. Much more consistent. Not that Nathan, and again, not that Nathan Hoover is chopped liver. No. Okay? No, nobody said Nathan Hoover is a nice piece to a lot of teams. Right. He's having to be the guy with no Cam Jackson and no Fletcher McGee, and people are clearly trying to take him out. He's getting everybody's best defender, best shot, everything else. So, again, you have to sort of understand what's happening with him. But Storm Murphy's only averaging eight points versus ETSU. Nobody, other than Messiah Jones in one game, who had 18, is averaging double figures. And the fact of, I think, Wofford losing two outstanding. And, and he, honestly, if you threw Matthew Pegerman there, who was a double-figure guy against ETSU, and nobody else, and Kiva Lume, and you lose all those guys, it's just tough for Wofford. And sometimes about matchups. And I think the matchup for Hoover versus the guards of ETSU hasn't been particularly great for him and we'll just have to see. Now, Soar Murphy's had a couple of outlier games, but he's also had a couple clunkers against ETSU. So the matchup for me is is I know um, Chavez Goodwin's been playing better as of late. Clearly, Masai Jones enjoyed his one outing versus ETSU. But if the Bucks bigs can kind of hold those guys a little bit at bay and no career days, then it's up to what ETSU's been able to do the few times they've guarded Hoover and Storm Murphy, which is keep them in check. And this is where we can talk about Jerome Rodriguez's return tonight. I'm very interested to see how many minutes he gets, if he'll be on a limited basis. I think anytime you're working somebody back in from a foot injury. Now, it does seem like Coach Forbes, the medical staff, have really given him ample time and, and really baby-stepped him back into conditioning, full uh, up-and-down-the-floor like game-type action. Uh, I think that ETSU is going to need some solid minutes from him because I'm more concerned about Chavez Goodwin, honestly. 15 of his last 21 from the floor, 63% on the year is what he's shooting from the floor. He was 3-5 of five against ETSU the first time around, only played 16 minutes. I think if you can limit how long he's on the floor because really <clears throat> he's not going to be somebody that is going to go out and shoot, you know, 10 shots in 15, 20 minutes. He's very volume-based in terms of how many minutes he is on the floor dictates how many shots that he's going to get. For instance, against Western Carolina, 17 minutes, two of three. But then 30 minutes each of the last two games against UNCG and Furman, where he was six of nine and seven of nine, 15 points in each game. So considering his athleticism, what he can do, the fact that he's very efficient and doesn't waste trips down the floor, I think it's very important for Jerome, however many minutes he puts in, and you and Coach Forbes are tight, you know this program a lot better than I do. Maybe you already know if he's on a limited basis or not but however many minutes he's out there it's very key especially I think on the defensive end for him to be able to make an impact on a guy like Chavez Goodwin I think anytime you come off an injury a foot injury something like that you're going to be limited and I'm not talking coach Forbes about it yet but I it would shock me one he's probably going to come off the bench instead 12 of to 15 minutes yeah I, I mean to me that's fair if even if he came out and was lights out, I, I just think they they have to know they didn't do all the work to have it blown up in, right. at, at Wofford. Now, in the same token, if he's out there 12, 15 minutes, he's got to give you everything. He's got to go at it because he's got to know if he's ready to go. So it's a double-edged sword. Uh, Rodriguez has to go and try to play and try to give everything he got to see if the foot is going to hold up. In the same token, the coaching staff can't lose its mind 
and say, okay, you've got to play 30 minutes, 32 minutes. Like, I, you know, I don't even think he was averaging half. He averaged like 28. But, I, I, you know, he can't get to the 28 minutes that he was playing before. I think he's got to be, you know, can he give us, you know, five, six, seven minutes in the first half, maybe something like that in the second half. That would be great. be awesome. And the big thing is, too, depending on how the game's going, if you need a rebounder late, right, gives you an extra big body there and a guy that can clearly go has a nose for the basketball to go pick it up. So I think it gives him better flexibility, obviously having another big body depending on matchups and going into the tournament and other things. The other thing is, is late in the game, if they need to put more guards in, they've, they've been working with that. That's something that's been working for them. But if it's a situation where they need to go bigger, now that is – freeing up the flexibility for head coach Steve Forbes. So Jerome Rodriguez, an excited comeback. Ted Larson uh, has uh, – not Ted, Ryan Larson, excuse me, has been out for a couple of games for Wofford. And a lot of people – I was like, hey, this is, is kind of big for Wofford. And a couple of people were like, well, he's like averaging like three points. But he's a starter. But but here's the deal. He also takes uh, takes some point minutes away and, and point minute as being point guard minutes away from Storm Murphy. And for an example, when Storm Murphy's had to play 35 minutes or more, which the last couple of games he's had, you know, he hasn't particularly shot the ball well. You're looking at turnover uh, numbers gone up. When he's been able to play more of his 32-33 type minutes, now you're seeing solid double-figure scoring. You start, so more legs for Storm Murphy, who honestly is a little guy, and I think people underestimate, well, I mean, if he's a point guard, he's got to be able to go, 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 go. Well, sometimes those guys need a couple minutes of breathers, you know. There's a reason why Isaiah Miller doesn't play 40 minutes, right? And he's the most energetic guy maybe in the league. Jack Sharkey effort, right. is another one. Those guys are full tilt. Isaiah Tisdale's got a high motor. Those guys need a couple minutes to sit down and rest. And when Tyler Larson wasn't there to help with some of the point guard duties with Storm Murphy, I think that's that's a little bit of, of an issue um, uh, for – Wofford and something that they're definitely going to have to try to manage uh, because he just gives guard and, and it's not just um, Murphy but he could also give Hoover a spell you know so Trevor Stump's a guy that I think is still scares me I think if you had to say all right Jay going into this game you know Hoover this and other I think Storm for the or, or um, Trevor Stump the one thing is because he's a guy that doesn't particularly score a whole lot right seven eight points a game but he has the ability, like he did at North Carolina, which was one of the main reasons they wanted to go four of six from three. Four of seven against Gardner-Webb from three. Four of nine at UNC Greensboro from three. He's got, he hits four threes. That's going to be an interesting situation for ETSU. I think that's going to be very tough. But now it's about his game now. He's going to just be a stretch four. He's going to be a tough rebounder. People usually, you know, you're trying to cover. Are you going to cover Murphy from three? Sure. Are you going to cover Hoover from three? Sure. Are you going to try to make sure Goodwin? So he's like the the fourth option offensively. But if he gives you a double figure four three point game at home, I, to me that that's a tremendous lift for them in the hometown crowd. This team's lost their last five in a row, but it's been by a combined twenty points. And you look at their eight league losses. Talking about Wofford by 43 combined points only one by double figures and it's interesting to see why and how those losses are unfolding the way they are I think partially it's free throw shooting which again coming into this year I think I would have been flabbergasted to think that they would be 68 percent in league play eighth out of the 10 teams and in three-point shooting 31 percent in league play ninth of the 10 Southern Conference teams and think on this while I lob some stats at you who do they miss more, Cam Jackson or Fletcher McGee? And we have touched on this last year, early on this year, I think when we were previewing 
the Southern Conference this season. And the reason I bring it up is because of the numbers last year versus this year in terms of three-point shooting. There were three players outside of McGee. Of course, he took like 400 threes, but, uh, and he could because he was <laughs> that good of a three-point shooter. He was that dynamic of a talent. Uh, but Nathan Hoover, Storm Murphy, Trey Hollowell all took 100 or more threes last year. The only other three outside of McGee to do so. Hoover last year, 47% from three, 30% this year. Murphy, 47% to 42%. Not a huge drop off, but still pretty significant when you're taking a lot of threes. And then Hollowell, 41% to 34%. And I wonder, I'd make the argument that they miss McGee more, not because he brings that percentage up or because he was this outrageously talented off-balance, fading away from wherever, 30-foot three-point shooter, but because when you have a number one guy in the perimeter like that, and you know you have to have a hand in his face six inches away from the ball every single play, uh, you've got to put all your attention on to McGee, where this year all the attention is on those guys on the perimeter. Now you can make the argument for Jackson and say, well, there was a force down low. You had to sink in on him, and so everyone's shots were more open, which is why they were able to succeed at a higher clip last year. So I think it is more McGee, but tactically I think you can make an argument either way. They were the best inside outside duo and prove that if you have a solid outside shooting with a legitimate inside threat, you're almost impossible to guard. Because if you did double-team Jackson – then somebody's got to be open, and you mentioned all the shooters. You mentioned three guys are still on the roster. You had Fletcher McGee to that. There's four guys on the roster. The only reason I would say if you had to make me pick one, McGee, is because there's like seven people in the world that can hit shots that he hit. Like, even if you did play great defense, him catching and turning and, and fading and 42 feet away and just not square to the basket ever, not even seemingly know. I mean, he, there's legendary stories about him shooting in the dark. Just trying to know where the rim's at. Knows that the really floor that sense. well, yeah. Yeah, like it's it's incredible. I mean, I remember as a kid watching Ozzie Smith and her asking him how great of a you know, shortstop he was and, and, and how he was a gold glove and all this. He said, well, I just worried about catching the ball because I know throwing it wasn't a problem. And then he demonstrated uh, either being blindfolded or – Having uh, having to look away every time he caught the ball, throwing to first base across his body, going the wrong direction, and wow. he was throwing strikes left and right to first base, and he took something out of it. it and I feel like, you know, Fletcher McGee is, it was sort of that. It's like, okay, I'm just going to turn the lights off. I don't really, I kind of know where the rim's at. You know, do I really need to see it? I just need to get oriented on the floor to where it's at. And obviously, he's left NCAA college basketball as the most prolific three point shooter ever. So if you had to make me say, I'm going to say that because even if you defended it, it didn't matter, you know. But Cam Jackson was such a talent, and he's so big and strong down low that if you didn't double team him, he dominated. And if you did double team him, he created so much havoc. So tactically, you know, taking Fletcher McGee off and you just said you had another great shooter, it's it's always Cam Jackson. The problem is the most prolific shooter in the history of NCAA was out there. So you're going, but that just shows you how great they were. I mean, how great were they last year having two solid guys with a solid inside, solid outside? It was almost impossible to guard. And everybody's shots were just more open. And that's the main point of this. Regardless of your answer, the shots were just more open for everybody, which is why when Hoover and Murphy have to step up and be the guy and you don't have to sink down on one major post threat like Cam Jackson. Now, again, Chavez Goodwin is solid, but he, I don't think that he is the polished big that Cam Jackson was. And when you don't have McGee, where you've got to have one, if not two guys, 
all over him to try and take away whatever three he's going to take and pull out of his bag of tricks, then you can go back to face guarding everybody else. So needless to say, they miss them both a lot, and it's shown in conference play. Early on in the year, I think that they still looked like that explosive three-point shooting team that could drop 13 or 14 on you. And you even picked in your bowl predictions last week that they would drop 15 on Furman, and uh, they didn't get there, and they haven't gotten to 10 often in conference play. Double-digit threes 10 times in the non-con, just three times in conference. They're 10-3 and three when they make double-digit threes, 9-0 and oh when shooting 48% or better. Also, in terms of turnovers, they forced double-digit turnovers. 19 of their first 24 games have failed to do so three times in this five-game losing streak that they have. Think about this. Outshot opponents 17 of 21 games last year, their last 21 games, got outshot four times in a row entering the last two versus UNCG and Furman. So um, it is just a different squad. The struggles, I think, make you believe that this is going to be an easy walkover win, but remember the numbers that we gave earlier. Five losses by 20 combined points, eight losses in league play by 43 combined points. I would have much rather had them win that game against Furman, and we've talked about this off-air, brought in Kevin Brown on it as well and a couple of others. I would have much rather had them win that game against Furman on Saturday and not have them be a broken team entering this contest. You know, are they a team that will give up? I don't think so. And so this is a worrisome game for me. I don't worry about the Western Carolina game a whole lot on Saturday. I know that's the game everyone wants to point to right now, but looking past this game I think would be a big mistake. Oh, I, no doubt. I, I think you got a wounded animal that's ready to strike. And, and again, this is still a, a pretty good basketball team. They've lost a lot of tight, single-digit, one-possession games. If nothing else, if you look at out of the five losses, you're looking at a seven-point loss chat, two-point Mercer, six-point Western, four-point in overtime UNCG, in which they had a shot to win the game, a one-point loss in which they shot – to win the game against Furman you add in just off the top of my head obviously the ETSU game for six of their conference losses and the worst one of those were seven points and honestly Chattanooga just hit some free throws late kind of extended that but still I mean it's a point the only time they really got hammered was at Chattanooga which shocked everybody it was a 72-59 score other than that you know it's pretty tight ball games it could have probably gone either way if a shot or two goes down and especially the the UNCG and the Furman game, I watched both those a couple times, and there were opportunities galore for them to win the game, not just late, but when they had leads to extend the leads and weren't able to hit some open shots. So um, the other thing I think that's odd is usually Wofford's a team that plays well from ahead. They're twelve and four and six, uh, twelve and four overall, six and three in league play when leading at half. And to me, that's a that's a little shocking because last year, obviously, when they got the lead, it was like, all right, even if it was like two nothing, you're like, I don't know if I can come back. Like, they just were able to to play. That being said, they've had two come from behind wins in league play, trailing at halftime, two and five there. But the six and three mark in league play when leading, uh, to me, is a little bit off for what they're doing. I I just think if ETSU can do what they've done a lot, which is contain Hoover and contain Murphy and just don't have somebody go crazy, whether it's Trey Hollowell, whether it's Trevor Stump, whether it's uh, Messiah Jones, I'll go for a career high, then I think ETSU should be fine in this game. The rebounding advantage is clearly ETSU's favor. Uh, Defense, I think, still favors ETSU. That being said, Wofford's on their home floor. 
clearly it's a it's a gym and there are people going to be jacked up for it they're trying to fight to get and i can't stress this enough they're fighting to get out of the seventh seed who would have thought crazy. they yep. have a shot to be in the play-in game on friday and whoever the two seed is has to be mad that they could possibly see wofford uncg or Furman could possibly have to play wofford each other and then etsu conceivably to win a championship in three straight days that's unbelievable it's unbelievable so Wofford is going they need to get out of the 7-10 game they need to try not to win four to go to an NCAA tournament so to me they're really going to be jacked up they're going to be a desperate team they're going to be a wounded animal back against the wall they're going to come out firing at all things can ETSU keep composure can they do what they do and can they not have a slow start in the first half can they not let Wofford hit five early threes and then they do hit 15 threes because they've got all the confidence in the world can they stop them from hitting a lot of threes early to me it's almost like early in the season when you would hear coach Shea go two by two by two which mean make them score two points don't give up three points and make them try to earn it that way and take them out of the game I think this is the exact case that what ETSU needs to do is they need to try to get them to score two by two by two and don't give up big three point play or either three point plays and or three point shots and so that's sort of my keys to the game. Good calls. All right. Speaking of good call, you had a good one yesterday. Did I? What did I say? I just meant the actual phone call that we're going to play next. Oh. <laughs> I mean, I, I thought I had a perfect. I thought I, I had a perfect assist here, and it, it did. I threw it out of bounds. I threw it over his I head out of bounds. Yeah. I, I threw it out of bounds. A lot of things going over my head today. Good call. Okay. All right. Well, we're going to talk a little bracketology type stuff with Mike Gallagher. Right for this time out to hear a word from Sidekick on the Buccaneers. Sports Network. Over the last 70 years, Johnson City Power Board has had a few different looks, but we've remained the same trusted partner you rely on. Now, we've changed our name to Bright Ridge to match our vision, to deliver on our promise of great service you can count on, embracing common sense technology to strengthen the communities we serve. We're glad to be your public power provider. Bright Ridge, new name, Renewed Promise. Learn more at brightridge.com. Trump. Trudeau. Trick Daddy. Tram, the insult comic dog. Who's next? I don't know what's going to happen. Secrets. Sandos and the Sidekick. Well, this is the first time we've actually had a mystery guest on the show in quite some time. And no, it isn't Joe Lenardi. It's somebody better. And here's why. Bracket Matrix, which has a running five-year weighted average of who predicts the field of 68 with the most accuracy, places Lenardi 55th across the internet with 133 ranked. Pretty average. The man at the top of those rankings, Dave Amon of Bracketville, the king of bracket projections. And of course, this is especially important for your ETSU Buccaneers because should they not win the Southern Conference postseason tournament, they will be left in limbo for the better part of a week, languishing in bracket purgatory here to ease the tensions or make them that much more tight. That man from Bracketville, Dave Amon. Dave, welcome. 
Uh, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Firstly, Dave, how does it feel to be that much better than the quote-unquote best? You're essentially Lenardi on steroids, or maybe a more apt reference these days would be Lenardi with a buzzer or someone banging on trash cans in the dugout. Well, you know, I, I appreciate the, you know when, when people mention things, but at, at the same time, I also recognize that uh, there's a lot of good fortune that goes into this, a few breaks that go your way here or there, and the margins between these things are very small. And I'm also very quick to recognize that there's a lot of talented people out there that have joined into the bracketology realm, if you will, you know, within the last uh, three to five years and even before that who do equally excellent work and and maybe a couple things have broken my way on seed lines, um, et cetera. And then I'm also, you know, quick to give kudos um, to Joe and people like Jerry Palm because the reality is without the forerunners of of Jerry and and then Joe – and the platforms that they were given, um, none of us would really be in the position or have the opportunity to do what we do. So I kind of prefer to look at it more of a kind of a collective group of college basketball fans who enjoy the process and how the process works to take us from where we are today through the process of uh, building the uh, teams and selecting them, building the bracket, and then giving us that wonderful piece of paper on Selection Sunday so that we can all enjoy March. Well, you don't have to talk yourself up. I'll do it for you. Number one, and humble to boot. Help us understand, Dave, what sets you apart. Have you found your formula differs significantly from others? Are you heavy on math or trends without giving away any secrets, of course? What do you do, Dave, that makes Bracketville? Well, um, you know, that's a good question. Um, if I ever figure out exactly what I've done, then I'll <laughs> have a better idea to make sure that I can <laughs> – keep doing it i I like to look at it a little bit like they say with the stock market right past performance is no guarantee of future results um but what i will say is i I think that it's you can't over rely on any one sort of metric because in my experience and having been through the mock process with the ncaa even though it was several years ago you know when the old rpi was still in place is that the men and women who are in that room take what they do very seriously. And we may not always agree one or two decisions or a seed line here or there, but it's not because they haven't put in uh, a diligent effort. And if you understand how the process works and the voting that goes into that from start to finish, if you and I and five other people were in a room and we were debating a team, we could all debate the merits and the the, um, parts of the resume that maybe weren't as good. And we could, go back and forth and then we have to go to a vote and so that process goes through privately and then things move forward and and that's the way it works so i try to simulate obviously that with myself but you try to weigh the good with the bad and then ultimately you can throw in the metrics and you can throw in a lot of the nuances of the resumes from strength of schedule and who did uh, who did you play in conference and who did you play out of conference but what i always like to say at the core of what this is who did you play, who did you choose to play, where did you play, and who did you beat, and where did you beat them? Hmm. Those kind of four to five questions, in a nutshell, sort of encompass the hard core of this. And then when you get down to those final few bubble teams, there are some other nuances that you just kind of have to put your hat on. And that's the challenge of it, is it's not my bracket. If it was my bracket, there would be no... um, Uh, stress to it there would be no anything else to it it would just be okay here's what i think and that's the way it is take it or leave it it's trying to simulate what we think 
all of us that collectively do this, what the, the men and women in that committee room are going to do based on the criteria that they have to work with. We'll talk a little bit later about maybe some blind spots, metrics-wise, ratings-wise, that fans should be looking at while we go through the end of February and early March conference tournament time, et cetera. But first, let's dive into the Southern Conference picture, and you have such a deep understanding of all these teams and scenarios and the history and such, and it's easy for us, unfortunately, but also fortunately, because that's the beauty of it, to get tunnel vision when looking at the Southern Conference, especially over the last couple of years with such a strong year last year for Wofford and it being kind of a four-team league, and now this year looks like more of a three-team league, but some real strength in the middle. What have been your impressions of the SOCON the last couple of seasons? Has it been as strong as people that are, quote-unquote, on the inside, like uh, the schools that are around the league, people that work for them, the fans, as strong as we all think? Well, I can't obviously speak for others. What I would say is, particularly the last couple of years, um, the top portion of the league has been very, very good. And that has borne itself out with, you know, performances that they've done, whether in the NCAA tournament or in the NIT. Um, They have acquitted themselves well both during the regular season and then when they've had other opportunities. So I think that that speaks volume into the quality of the league. And it also speaks a volume when you look at things like people like Kansas, LSU, and in the case of East Tennessee State, Georgetown for – uh, UNC Greensboro, because they play Kansas as well, North Carolina State. When you get invited, and with Furman, Auburn, and Alabama, uh, when you get on teams' radars, now granted they want you to come to their place because that's just the way the world of the college basketball uh, system works right now. Um, and I can offer a little one thing I would like to see change in, in how they do that down the road, but when you get invited, people then are not seeing you necessarily as just a buy game that they want to get a home crowd for. They're also doing that because the Kansases of the world understand that they want to get a number one seed and they want to have opponents that they're going to play, granted that they think they can win on their home floor, but at the same time that are going to help their profile. So that in and of itself speaks to the quality of the league, in my opinion. Let's get into ETSU. Time for some hard-hitting questions here, Dave. If the Bucks did not have an automatic bid in your bracket right now, would they be in? Are they worthy of an at-large bid as things stand midweek before the Bucks take on Wofford in Spartanburg Wednesday night? The best answer I could give you is I believe they would be very much right in the mix, and I think they should be just inside the cut line. So I think if the season ended today – they would have um, a certainly get a strong, hard look from the committee. What I can't do is give you an absolute because we know how these things work over the years, and there's so many moving parts and so many other factors because there's just, as I always like to remind people, no team plays in a vacuum. So it's not just what East Tennessee State does. It's also what other teams that are in that same situation do and who are you ultimately going to be compared against are you going to get a pair paired against um somebody like providence are you going to get compared against somebody like richmond are you going to get compared against somebody like a utah state or a memphis or a wichita state so who ultimately when their name comes up on the board and they get selected and they're going to be discussed about which they definitely would in that group of teams that they first or second get paired with, 
how do they compare against those? I'm asking you to do a difficult thing here because there's a lot of teams in this category, obviously four of them. How do the Buccaneers hold up against a Providence, a Wichita State, the Oklahomas, the USC's, those currently your last four in against Providence, Wichita State, Oklahoma, USC versus ETSU. Now, again, that's a lot of different resumes to compare against the Bucks, but you've got there kind of a wide variety of schools that have had a wide variety of experiences, including a Wichita State team that's led by a good friend of Steve Forbes, Greg Marshall. Yeah, and this is where you have to start trying to figure out how the committee is going to look at, for example, profiles that they're never going to be exactly even. Okay, Providence plays in the Big East, so their opportunities to collect quad one and quad two wins are greatly enhanced simply because of the league that they're in. And so you also have to weigh, in my opinion, a little bit of what they do is uh, success versus opportunity, if you will. And I'll give you maybe a better example, because Providence right now has seven quad one wins. Their issue is that they had a horrible start to the season. Right. Right. They lost to Charleston and Penn and Northwestern and Long Beach State, and so they're having to overcome basically nothing out of their non-conference season, which also contributes three or four losses. So instead of being, say, 19-9 and nine and probably safely in, they're at 16 and 12 today and right probably somewhere along that cut line. Um, now Providence is playing a whole lot different now than it did in November, but the committee kind of looks at your team sheet as a whole. So while the dates are on there, they don't, they apply all the results equally. So just because you had a, a great start and a poor finish, the poor finish doesn't weigh more than the great start or vice versa. And, you know, last year with Oklahoma, if you remember, there were a lot of people that felt the Sooners just, you know, weren't playing very well, but they still got a bid. And one reason that they did, right or wrong, is that the committee values a team's entire body of work, not just what happened. I don't remember the exact year, but a few years ago, they got rid of that criteria of what was your record in the last 10 games. That used to be a factor. They eliminated that. So it's not a criteria, uh, at least specifically for the committee. Now, an individual committee member can can value that to themselves and how they vote, but it's not an official criteria that they uh, that they monitor. So you know that question is uh, it, it's hard to give a you know against a Providence because of of their situation. But if we go and try to maybe uh, compare a little bit more, uh, somebody let's look at like an Oklahoma for example right now that is three and nine versus quadrant one, but has five quadrant two wins and is hanging out right on the cut line. So you look at East Tennessee State, you know, the way that we're going right now, and if there is a knock, it's the fact that they only have three wins in the top two quadrants. Now they have a big one at LSU, and then they have a sweep of UNCG. So you're talking about we won two of the three against quadrant one, where, um, you know, a team like Wichita State, for example, one two of six so they're two and four but they have more opportunities because of the conference that they're in it would be a very close call in my opinion and you know you could spend the next uh, hour on a call debating (laughs) all the insides and the outs but that's exactly what will happen and then you also have to look at the overall just ability to win and the road record so this is where a big advantage comes in like oklahoma is only two and eight in its true road games even though it's one three on neutral courts where a team like East Tennessee State has won 10 road games. Um, So 
and they had to play a lot of road games in the non-conference, and they did win at Little Rock, which currently leads the Sun Belt. Whether they'll win it or not, you know, it's hard to say. So that, you know, brings some extra value to there. Ultimately, the best-case scenario I can give you for East Tennessee State if they don't win the conference tournament is to be sure that you're either facing Furman or UNCG in that championship game because what you don't really want to have happen is to leave a lasting impression by losing to a team that might be considered a, quote, bad loss for that final uh, uh, mark on your resume. You mentioned it a couple questions ago. Just how hard should fans be pulling for a Winthrop in the Big South at ETSU beat by three? Obviously, Kansas, a 12-point loss on the road, uh, that's not going to, I think, hurt their case considering the Jayhawks are the number one team in the country. But an Arkansas Little Rock, you talked about a North Dakota State who's challenging for the Summit League title, obviously LSU. All of these teams that are in – uh, bubble contention, quote unquote. I guess in ter- we won't call them bubble contention, but just in terms of challenging for a league title. Just how important is that, and how beneficial would it be for some of those non-conference teams? You talk about opportunities that the Bucks have had. They've taken advantage of most of them, and even looking down their schedule to the Mercer game, with Mercer winning nine of its last twelve. Just how big can runs like that be for the Bucks opponents? Well, those are the little nuances that we talk about that the committee will be aware of. And obviously, when you defeat a regular season and or conference uh, a champion, but particularly a regular season champion, I do think there is a little bit of added weight. Now, I can't tell you that, you know, uh, Winthrop winning the Big South, for example, is going to vault East Tennessee State into the, um, the tournament as an at-large. Right. What I can say, though, is obviously that adds a little bit of value because you're not just beating a middle-of-the-road Big South team. You're beating the champ. Same potentially for Little Rock or North Dakota State. So I do think there's a little extra benefit to that. But, again, you know, how much, it's, it's hard to say. You know, if you're asking me, do I think East Tennessee State, having seen them play, do I think they're belong in the tournament as if in their situation today? I would say yes. But – there's going to be a lot of things happen between now and Selection Sunday. And if we've learned anything this year during Championship Week, it's going to be to expect the unexpected. So it could be a scenario like we had last year where East Tennessee State could be one of those final four teams going in as an at-large if they were in that position. And then two or three teams unexpectedly win their other conference tournaments and take spots. And the tough part, Dave, I'm sure, is you can go point and counterpoint for everything, right? Like you mentioned the road wins. Well, Oklahoma may be 2-8 and eight in true road games. ETSU may be 10-3, and three, but an Oklahoma fan may say, well, who has Tennessee, East Tennessee State played on the road? And granted, there are a couple of good answers there with Kansas and LSU, but they'd say, well, in league play, you're getting uh, quote-unquote cream puffs like uh, Citadel and uh, VMI and teams of that ilk. But then on the other side, ETSU fans can say, see who we've beaten and the very few opportunities that we have had. So your two or three quadrant one and two wins don't match up against ours simply because we haven't had as many chances. Yeah, and that's where all this nuanced stuff comes in. And that's why, like, a net rating is really, and I tried to tell people this when it was the former RPI, it, it matters. I'm not saying that it does not matter at all. But the committee uses it more of an or, as an organizational tool than it does a purely based system of that's exactly where you stand because otherwise what would be the point of the committee right we would just take the next 36 best teams as ranked in their net rankings and and that would be the end of it because you know you have teams like some in the big 10 right now 
who still have a high net rating because of the power of the conference, but they're sitting at 500, in which case there's never been a precedent for a team with that kind of a record to get an at-large bid. So um, it, it, there's never one and all, and I think it's also worthy to point out that there is a certain level of art to this beyond the science, and some of that is, you know, these the, the committee members watch a lot of basketball. They watch team plays, and sometimes when you're talking about resumes that you go back and forth and you spend an hour debating three teams and it becomes very hard to make a decision, sometimes it's which one of the three do you think is the best? And then they take a vote and, and uh, off we go. Hmm. There's a big moment coming up, and this is our last one on ETSU, and I just got a couple more for you after that, and we'll let you go. We appreciate the extended time. Jerome Rodriguez is coming back tomorrow night for ETSU, and we're talking on this Tuesday for a Wednesday show here on Santos and the Sidekick. Dave Amon of Bracketville joining us, the number one bracketologist over the last five years, according to Bracket Matrix. Jerome Rodriguez, of course, a double-double machine last year, top ten in the country in rebounds, and he's missed since the last Furman game, or I should say two Furman games ago, January 4th been out the better part of the last seven weeks in your experience missing a key player like that and getting him back late in the season a game or two left in the regular season and of course the postseason tournament coming up in Asheville here in the Southern Conference how can that affect a team's appeal to this committee in getting in as an at-large is it that nuance that you talk about maybe a little bit smaller of a piece or seeing that a star is out and they're returning and could potentially be 100% and gaining momentum towards the NCAA tournament? Is that a big thing? Again, it's a great question, and the reality is none of us have ever been in that room to hear exactly how they discuss it. So we have to kind of listen in to those types of things when we hear the committee chairs speak over the years. My takeaway from what I would know about that is Historically, it seems to matter more for potential seeding mm. than it does for the selection process because the committee really has put itself in a position where they're not going to try to determine whether or not a team would have won or not won a game based upon uh, an individual situation where, I mean, you know, what if about a player – you know, they, they roll an ankle in the, in, the, in the first half and then they miss the second half of the game or they're, they have the flu and they miss a game. Does it come into play? Yeah, it can come up and be discussed. And the committee is apprised of all of those situations for the teams. Uh, they get very detailed reports of all of that. So it will be factored in. But to say that the committee, for example, won't count it as a loss because he didn't play – that's not. I don't believe that's true either. It's not like, well, you get a pass because they weren't there. So the results are the results. But obviously if he comes back and they play really, really well down the stretch, could it help in a close call? Yeah, but it could be more of a factor of if ETU is going to get in and let's say maybe they end up on the – Maybe they end up on the 10 line rather than the 11 line or the 11 line rather than the 12 line, depending on how that would work. That's all on ETSU. One on the SOCON as a whole, more general. Just how far removed from the bubble are UNCG and Furman, and which team do your projections favor? Well, at this point, pretty much uh, UNCG would still have um, an at-large shot with a little more help. Um, You know, if we look at the seed list that was updated this morning, they're sitting at about 77, which is nine spots out. 
Um, and I don't know whether they would ever be able to climb that high, um, you know, with the time we have left, because other than beating, um, you know, East Tennessee State, which at this point is not going to happen until the tournament, uh, I'm not sure they're going to have enough of, of a win chance to vault them unless a lot of other teams lose. But we'll see how that plays out, because in my experience, too, more teams play their way out than play their way in. So we sit here with UNCG and we look, OK, we got a good win at Georgetown. We have a close loss to um, NC State, but we were swept by East Tennessee State. And then both UNCG and East Tennessee State have a quad three and a quad four loss. So they're pretty close. East Tennessee State, by virtue of the sweep, even though head-to-head is more important to fans than it is to the committee, um, I would probably give uh, East Tennessee State the slight edge there. And then, of course, UNCG does have that win at Vermont, which is a quad two win for their third. So... You know, they're in the same neighborhood, but the fact that LSU right now would be a stronger win than Georgetown, unless the Hoyas go on a run, I would give the edge to East Tennessee State, but UNCG in the mix. Furman, where they currently stand in the net, and the fact that their only quadrant one or two win is East Tennessee State at home, I just don't know that they're going to have enough um, weight or heft on their resume to to get back in the mix as an at-large. Dave, this has been great, and we'd love to have you back on next week if the Bucks are in that purgatory we talked about. One final one for you. As we come down to the last two weeks of the season, what are the blind spots for fans in terms of metrics, ratings, things they may not usually take into consideration that they should look at in trying to decipher if their team may be in or not? Well, obviously, you know, if you pay close attention to this stuff, um, key wins, wins against NCAA-level opponents, always matter to the committee we hear that all the time when they're talking to them during that championship week and they're talking about quality wins wins versus the field have you proven you can beat teams that will be in the tournament so that ultimately is important and probably outweighs who you could lose to provided those losses are an outlier any team can lose a game can have a bad night it's the way college basketball works so one such loss isn't as crippling as not having proven that you can beat quality teams. So that's probably the best thing I can I, I can say, you know, within like the net ratings. I mean, there's kind of historically a range where, you know, if you're above 80, you're probably not going to get a whole lot of serious consideration unless there's really some, you know, rule. But you start getting above 80 or 85, you're probably really not going to be in play. Um, but you can also overemphasize the fact, like we said, a Purdue right now is at 36 but they're at even 500 on the season. So they're going to have some work to do to finish out the season to really get them back in the at-large picture. Dave, fantastic stuff. We really appreciate the extended time giving ETSU fans a little bit better look, a more concise look from someone that has been at the forefront of bracketology for the last, goodness, I think it's nearly 15 years now. Is that right? Well, let's see. It's it's coming up on it. Yeah, I, I was kind of surprised how long that I've been online <laughs> with it. I've been doing it a little bit longer than that, but uh, – Yeah, time gets away from you, that's for sure. (laughs) Well, you do a great job, Dave. Thanks again. All right, thank you. Dave Amon from Bracketville. Check him out, Bracketville, Dave Amon's website. He does a spectacular job. Make sure to check out all of the tabs at the top of his page, complete with a seed list, bracketology, updated seemingly every few hours. Dave does great work. Back on Santos and the Sidekick with the College Insider Mid-Major Top 25 on the Buccaneer Sports Network. 
Life is all about perfect pairings. Sweet and salty, naughty and nice, hot and cold. Well, add instant and jackpot to the list because that's what you'll get when you add Quick Cash to your next Tennessee Cash play. Quick Cash is a simple way to turn one game into two. With Quick Cash, you'll have a chance to win up to $500 instantly right there at the register. Plus, you'll still have a chance to win the Tennessee Cash drawing later. Get the best of both worlds and get twice the fun. It's Quick Cash with Tennessee Cash, only from the Tennessee Lottery. Game-changing fun. Please play responsibly. No, you didn't. And uh, Gonzaga 1, ETSU 2, BYU 3, and then you can start with 4. Go. Let's get at it. Gonzaga number 1 at long last nope. as eggs fall. No, you're not going to do it. And we can start respecting the West Coast Conference again. Though, <laughs> I'll be back in a minute. Am I really happy about that? You're actually going to leave, aren't you? Yeah, okay. Uh, of course, I'm not happy that Gonzaga lost because I actually like to hate on the Gonzaga Coast Conference. But anyway, 91-78, to 78, the Cougars of BYU pull off the upset over the Bulldogs. We asked last week, let's just lead it in so everyone has, if you didn't join us last week in the College and Center Mid-Major Top 25, some background. Talked about a scenario which ended up being true. The scenario was the Bucs win both of their games, which they did, and Gonzaga loses to BYU or San Francisco. They lost to BYU. Would it give ETSU first place votes in this poll after all 31, essentially every week, go to Gonzaga? And here is the prognostication by Jay Sanders. If the Bucs can beat Furman and Sanford this week, I question to you, should the Zags lose to San Francisco or number 23 BYU, does ETSU get any first place votes in the College Insider Mid-Major Top do, 25? Do you? Yes. But do, do, do you? I mean, get a I'm vote surprised. or two. I, I mean, don't you don't think you'll get a vote or two? They'll get a vote or two. Yeah, I don't know. Boy, were you sure. And while Gonzaga doesn't get all 31 first place votes, which is even funnier to me, they get 30 of them, and the other one doesn't go to ETSU, it goes to BYU. And, and Great in, call. Speaking of calls, and in fairness, I was still you cut off. Early. I still said Gonzaga is going to be the hands down number one. Like there's no way somebody was going to jump them. Like if you would have played it out, so I at least knew. I mean, maybe they get a vote. Maybe they get. Well, two. that was clear. Yeah, I mean, maybe get one. I mean, when they're, they're a, a top and five the team in the country is, in the AP, is ETSU actually lost ground <laughs> because a majority of the votes coming in on BYU and their big surges, which we'll talk about in a second. So ETSU is actually like, you know, 58 behind. Now they're like, what is it, 61 behind. That's right. So they actually lost ground, even though they won and Gonzaga last. Lost or last, whatever. Last lost. Number two, the Bucks. We didn't really talk about this in the first segment while we were breaking down ETSU and Wofford. What's the more dangerous matchup, Wofford or Western, these last two in the regular season? Playing on the road's always tougher. You could argue, since Western's playing better and they have Dotson, they didn't have Dotson the first go-around. You can make a, an argument one way or another. My my issue is playing on the road. I think, uh, I think I feel much better. And it would be flipped. If ETSU played Western on the road and Wofford at home, I think I would say Western. But because it's at Wofford, I'm going to say Wofford. BYU number three passes both of their major tests this week, beating sinking Santa Clara by 10. And then the big one we talked about over Gonzaga. The Cougars up to number 17 in the AP Top 25, all up to number three this week in the College Insider. Mid-major Top 25 after being seven last week. They're also top 15 in the net. Do you find that odd? Can I, can I just, before you finish rattling off, I, because you said, I want to go back to AP, they're 17. 
So Gonzaga's third. I think third. Third. Still, yeah. I say I think third, and BYU seventeen, and ETSU still somehow ahead of BYU and got like I don't know thirteen votes. Gonzaga third, BYU seventeenth. ETSU got yeah thirteen votes. I think they're like thirty fourth in the country. So to me, the rest of the country is telling me that somehow the West Coast Conference is stupid, ridiculous, good somehow. Well, they're going to get three apparently because everyone mm-hmm. has St. Mary's in too. Then can we get them out of the mid major top twenty five? I'm going to we're going to get Joe Dwyer on. If they get three in, I'm going to lose my mind on Joe. Go. Should be a good seed coming for BYU. Either way you cut it, as long as they don't implode down the stretch and fall from the good graces of the voters in both polls. Yale, number four. They edged by Cornell Friday in double overtime thanks to an August Mahoney jumper with two seconds left in the second extra session to flip a one-point deficit to a one-point win. The very next day, not tired on the road at Columbia, winning by 18. The Bulldogs now a game clear of Harvard and Princeton and up one spot in the polls. Still two weeks left in the Ivy League regular season. Yale does face Princeton in a battle that could be for first place Saturday while Harvard has Columbia and Cornell. The Crimson also just a game back of Yale as are Princeton. So lots of shuffling possible at the top of the Ivy. Liberty, number five, they get revenge on North Florida for beating them by one on the 23rd of January with an 82-77 to win over UNF. They then get revenge on Stetson, who beat them just two days later after UNF did in January, 77-49, to that victory. So their two league losses erased, avenged, and they also reclaimed the top spot in the two-team race for the regular season title. UNF now a half game behind the Flames. Liberty from 6-5 to this week. Here's St. Mary's. So you've got three in the top ten, from the West Coast Conference, three in the top ten from the Southern Conference, which we'll talk about in a second, or I should say this week, it's three in the top 11. Uh, so six of the top 11 teams made up by the West Coast Conference and the SOCON in the now abolished Gonzaga Coast Conference, known as the West Coast Conference. A six-point win over LMU, 57-51, to 51, then a victory in which they put 92 on San Diego, winning a couple of different ways this past week. The Gales stand in third in the WCC, a game and a half behind BYU and three behind Gonzaga, but clearly... The committee of voters favors BYU as the Gales slide two spots despite the wins. BYU hopping them, as did Liberty. UNI, Northern Iowa, only able to split their games this past week. Indiana State besting the Panthers to make things even more interesting than Missouri Valley. It's now a one-game lead for UNI over Loyola Chicago. Northern Iowa does avoid being tied for the top spot in the conference by beating Southern Illinois to open up a two-game advantage over them. And Bradley down four spots this week, though. Stephen F. Austin, number eight, 11 in a row for the Lumberjacks. Only one of those had come by double digits entering this past week, but a 15-point win over Central Arkansas and a 24-point win over Incarnate Word gives SFA a bit of breathing room to enjoy the latter stages of a game and also essentially lock up the Southland. Three-game lead, four to go. UNCG, number nine, tight four-point win over Wofford and three-point win over VMI. I ask you now, who is the better team entering the final week of league play, Furman or UNCG? Uh, I'm, I would go UNCG. I think it'll be proven tonight as well. And UNCG also, if you heard our conversation with uh, Dave Amon from Brackettville, he thinks that UNCG is far and away in terms of chances of making well, any NCAA tournament, making a late run. He thinks they're still alive if things break the right way for them in terms of an at-large, which seems a little bit far-fetched. But. Well, what, what happens is, is Furman will get credit for a quad one road win over UNCG, where it's going to be a quad two home win uh for uncg if they beat Furman. Furman wins quad one win so you he tried he i thought he did a great job trying to explain the quads and and sort of opportunities and all that good fun stuff but this would be a bigger win for Furman because it's quad one win now the separating factor i think they brought up was the fact that uncg beat georgetown Furman was not able to clip off although it should have clipped off 
uh, a very good Auburn team, but wasn't able to, to hang on there. And let's be honest, with Stephen F. Austin getting just crazy hot the last two, three weeks, they're jumping in the at-large conversation now, and they've got the best non-conference win of them all. Went into Cameron Indoor and beat Duke, and that's just who who's going to top that one? I mean, out of you and I can't. Obviously, ETSU can't. UNCG can't. Furman can't. I mean, I don't even think St. Mary's can. So I, I think Stephen F. Austin's trying to prime themselves if they continue to win out again because of some of the weakness of the rest of college basketball that. You know, we say this every year, and then every year it seems like they still get 12 teams in from one league, but we'll, we'll try to figure it out. We move to number 10 in New Mexico State with the losses of Gonzaga, Baylor, and San Diego State. Remember, those were the longest win streaks in the country. Now the longest win streak in the country belongs to Chris Jans in New Mexico State. They've won 18 in a row. They do share it with Dayton, and the only other double-digit streaks in the country are we just talked about one. Uh, Stephen F. Austin. Stephen F. Austin. And the other. Is it BYU? No. We haven't talked about this one. Okay. This is a, this is a high major. Power five. Big 12. Oh, uh, Kansas. Boom. Kansas. And it's a wrap in the whack as well. Uh, NMSU, your regular season champion, and one seed. Chris Jans and company rolling right now, having won 18 in a row. Furman, number 11. Allows each of the three teams we just mentioned, Stephen F. Austin, UNCG, and New Mexico State, to jump them because of the loss to ETSU. Then nearly drop another by a nose. They make it work versus Wofford, 67-66. to 66. I don't think we've talked about yet on the show how exactly this one unfolded. Describe how you saw it and just how lucky the Paladins were to escape with a victory. Well, first of all, it was a situation where it was an out-of-bounds call with about, uh, I don't know, 14 seconds to go. And it was originally called that Wofford stepped on the line when saving the ball. So as opposed to Wofford having the ball and getting fouled to shoot free throws to attempt to extend a one-point lead, they went. They already called him out of bounds. They reviewed it, honestly. I, and there's extra angles that aren't normally shown. But they played in the downtown arena. So I don't know if they installed the extra replay cameras or if they just went off the production truck. But the production truck views, you couldn't tell. Um it looked like live to me, and even looking at it, I, I wouldn't call it. But, but again, I'm not the referee. I'm not standing right there. The referee said that. So first break goes against Wofford. Inbound the ball. Furman gets it to Mike Bothwell. The left-hander drives to the left side of the floor, gets to the block, double-teamed. He turns to throw it back out. Both defenders leave him to go find shooters, and then he just spins back towards the goal with nobody there, lays it up and in. And then Wofford comes down the floor, and just like they did against UNCG, Murphy dribbles, gets in trouble, gives it to Hoover like a second to go. He's got a fire shot contested. And then like UNCG, where it was a tie game, they're down one. Shot's really not that close, and then they go on to lose. So just a very, very tough, heartbreaking loss for Wofford. And again, Furman, you know, even though I say UNCG's better, Furman's had a little bit more of a horseshoe. And to be honest... You know, to win a championship, to, to get at large, get that you got to have sometimes breaks go your way. They've gone Furman's way. And maybe Wofford, all their breaks went last year. Let's be honest. They had the undefeated season. Everything's going great. Every drop went their way. Now it's not. So maybe it's working out. CETSU football two years ago, everything's going great. This year it didn't. You know, sometimes the, the, the sports gods, if you will, look down upon different things. So it was a heartbreaking defeat for Wofford and give – Furman credit because they were able to make a play with seven seconds to go. 
Down three spots this week. Furman. Number 12, Akron. Get past Western Michigan and Miami of Ohio last week. They had won five in a row since losing by four combined points against Buffalo and Kent State. In the MAC East, it was a tie entering last night's showdown with Bowling Green for the top spot in the league. And the Zips couldn't get it done. 78-60, to 60, the final in favor of the Falcons. So a good one uh, to spread between Bowling Green and Akron uh, instead of being tied. Now it's just that one game advantage for the Falcons. As we move to number 13, Hofstra, seven in a row for the Pride as they defeat Drexel and Delaware in the Colonial. Now one and a half game lead over William and Mary. Win just one this week in the conference regular season title on one seat is theirs. Towson and JMU at home. The obstacles in their way. James Madison just two and 14 this year. You'd expect that's where the W comes from. Towson, 10 and six fighting for a seat in the top four, so that may be tougher. Wright State, one game left in the Horizon League regular season, and it's the big one in that league to decide whether it will be a share or outright conference title. Wright State couldn't clear Youngstown State this past week, losing by 18 Thursday before needing overtime to get past Cleveland State. If Northern Kentucky wins on their home floor, it's a share of the title. If Wright State is anywhere close to what they were in their first matchup with the team chasing them, when the Norse, uh, when they beat the Norse, I should say, by 32, it will be a solo title on one seed for Wright State. Down two spots, Wright State, ahead of their big night versus NKU. Vermont, number 15. Their magic number is one, despite losing on their home floor this past week to UMBC. Stony Brook, who are in second, need to win their remaining three games, while the Catamounts would need to lose their remaining two in order to have a tie for the league title. And they've each beaten each other once, so it would go to a tie break. No more meetings between the two in the regular season. Down two spots this week. Vermont, after splitting the week. Now, Belmont, number 16, and we'll just talk about the entire OVC here and skip the other two teams uh, that are in the conversation, Murray State and Austin P. Belmont's number 16 in the Ohio Valley. It's now a three-way tie for first and just another great year in this league. 13-3 and three are the three teams. The Bruins, Austin P. and Murray State. This one, once again, going to be a really fun race to the finish. The Racers lost, speaking of racers, to Eastern Illinois by three and then went in the road and barely moved past SIU Edwardsville, 59-58. Eastern Illinois also beat Austin P. That after the Governors also beat SIU Edwardsville. So a split by Austin P and Murray State plus a sweep of the week for Belmont means chaos this final week. Austin P and Murray State meet on the regular season's final day this Saturday while Belmont doesn't have to play either of the top teams. Their road is Tennessee Tech and Tennessee State, both teams at 500 or below in league play. So that bodes well for the Bruins with one guaranteed loss for either Murray State or Austin P. So... Before I do that, I'm going to fully break that down. Yes. Don't, don't forget, Buck fans need Vermont to win, and people may be confused by that, but it's about your opponent's opponents. UNCG went to Vermont and won, so you need a pull for Vermont to win that league, and that's also another feather in the cap for UNCG. The Ohio Valley Conference has an interesting tournament set up. They've done it now five, six years. Their first round five, You sure you don't want me to break this down? No, I'm positive. Uh, okay. Okay. I am positive. Five versus eight, and then six and seven play. The 5-8 winner plays the 4 seed. The 6-7 plays the 3. Well, why is that important? Because you get two buys in the OVC. So whoever's going to lose the Austin P game, barring a miracle from Tennessee Tech or Tennessee State to throw more chaos into it, one of those two teams obviously loses, has to play an extra day. So they're going to play. They'll be the 3 seed. They played the 6. Now, can you argue, well, maybe they get a game in, they get hot. The other teams had to wait a whole week before they play. Maybe, but then the 3-2, and then Belmont's got a chance to sit there at the one seed just granting. They've only got to beat the 4-5 winner if Chalk holds, and then they would play the winner of the 2-3 matchup again if Chalk holds and in a title game. So the three seed's got to play an extra day. 
don't get as much. There's obviously more room for error because just like the three, maybe they get an advantage by playing in the game before. So does the six, seven game. So it's very interesting. And the Ohio Valley's only had the one seed win once in this format. They've wow. tried to protect the ones and twos. And it makes me happy because Belmont fought to get this and they very rarely have won it because of that, except for when they were a two seed. So I find it amusing that they've tried to protect themselves and it's not, but it is going to be a fun end to the Ohio Valley race and a fun tournament, which actually moved out of Nashville for the first time in a long time. And it's going to be, I think in um, Illinois, I think they're in Evanston, Illinois for that, ah, for whatever reason. Yuck. Don't like that. That's all I got. Number 17, Bowling Green, up a spot this week. Only beat Ball State in Ohio by a combined seven points, but this time of year, W is a W, and they got one of those last night, as we mentioned in the conversation about Akron. They'll be up, and Akron will be down next week, just looking ahead to next week's poll. Number 18, Little Rock. Important, as you heard with the conversation with Dave Amon, as you just talked about opponents and then opponents of opponents. ETSU beat Little Rock by four earlier this year. The Trojans do rebound. They go on the road and defeat Arkansas State by three. That was their only game last week, and the Red Wolves aren't exactly top-notch competition. Now 7-11 and 11 in the league, but the win for UL- UALR, good enough to boost themselves three spots and maintain a one-and-a-half game lead in the Sun Belt. Hot on their heels, Texas State, but they're running out of time. They need to win their two games and hope that Little Rock slips up in two of their final three to make up the ground they need to. Murray State, number 19, laid out their path in the Belmont Talk against Eastern Kentucky and Austin P this week. 24 combined league wins between those two. Going to be a real challenge to try and get that one seed in league title. Number 20, South Dakota State. More big offensive performances from the Jackrabbits. 94 on UND and 85 against South Dakota. That means a one and a half game lead for SDSU because NDSU, speaking of opponents and opponents' opponents, lost to UND Saturday night by three after beating South Dakota by three. Tons of Dakotas. We get it kind of confusing. The most important ones to pay attention to, NDSU and SDSU. The Jackrabbits in prime position to take the Summit League title. But Thursday, NDSU can stay alive when they host the Jackrabbits make it a half game and that's SDSU's last game of the regular season so NDSU wins their last two both teams finish 13 and three and they will have taken a game apiece in the series so it would come down to tie breaks for the one seed but they'd share the conference title another team that ETSU well they didn't come out on the right end of that one uh they to have that loss against NDSU if it's a regular season league champion and then of course NCAA tournament participant uh, wouldn't be nearly as bad resume wise uh, at least and the mental side of it. The numbers may be pretty similar, but the mental side of it would be losing to another NCAA tournament team. So I think people pulling for NDSU if they're on the Bucks bandwagon as well. Number 21, Austin Peep. Their split this last week drops them two spots, just like Murray State was dropped to, as we discussed. They play Murray State Saturday after their Moorhead State matchup Thursday. That game at home, the Murray State game on the road. Uphill battle for them, too. Circle Belmont is the favorite. Number 22, Colgate up two spots, a tight win over Lehigh, and a blowout of Holy Cross in their week. Up two games on Boston U with two to play. So a split of a league title still possible, but the one seed is not for Boston U because Colgate beat them in both regular season matchups. So Colgate, the top dog in the Patriot at tournament time. Loyola Chicago, number 23 down three spots they could be tied with UNI at the top of the valley but instead a 12-point loss to Murray State leaves them a game back with just two to play they split the regular season series with Northern Iowa so if they end up tied it will come down to a tie break the final week sees Drake and Bradley for the Ramblers for UNI it's Evansville and Drake favor the Panthers to win out since they have a 500 Drake team and an MVC winless Evansville side would be a pretty big shock if they don't finish on top of these Ramblers. Last two, Harvard, despite not scoring the last 325, they somehow hold off Princeton at home 61 to 60. The Tigers scored just three points the last 445. Jalen Llewellyn missing a three as time expired. 
part of their field goalless run that spanned the entire 445. Huge win for the Crimson, who also edged by Penn, 69-65 the next day. Within a, within a game of Yale at the top, tied with Princeton, thanks to that win over the Tigers and what should be a great time on March 7th, Yale-Harvard for what could be the league title. And as we always remind you, there is now a tournament in the Ivy League, has been the last three years. Harvard yet to win it. Princeton, Penn, and Yale have. Could be the Crimson's year, who have won a league-high four in a row now. And finally, Montana, number 25, the only team that is new in the poll this week as Harvard moved from number 25 to 24, creating room for the Grizzlies. Big road win at rival Montana State, along with a win over Big Sky bottom feeder Idaho State. Those two wins matched by Northern Colorado and Eastern Washington, who are one game behind the Grizz in the conference. Still two weeks to go in the Big Sky regular season, but this Saturday, Eastern Washington and Northern Colorado will decide who will be the top challenger to Montana entering the final week as they meet at 9 p.m. So again, tonight, it's big in the SoCon, Furman at UNCG. One team staying on the Bucks' heels, or God forbid, pulling into a tie with ETSU. SDSU versus NDSU Thursday with a Summit League crown on the line. Wright State versus Northern Kentucky Friday for the Horizon League strap. Murray State versus Austin P Saturday, which potentially is for the regular season title. And in the big sky, Eastern Washington and Northern Colorado. And that is your College Insider Mid-Major top 25 college basketball blowout on this wednesday jay sandals i like it a blowout it's getting there close to march two more games in february had to dive right in calendar turns that's crazy socon tournament the following so week fun. so much fun can't wait gonna be packed i heard there's only like 100 tickets or something like something absurd like the things nearly sold out and i don't know how exactly the ticket structure works or anything but it sounds like if you want to get your tickets make sure to go and get them soon need to get it or now SoCon right Sports got them. Starts Thursday with the women. Saturday for the men. Technically Friday night, but you don't have to worry about ETSU play Saturday. That's all you need to know. All right, Friday. We're going to recap this game against the Wofford Terriers. We'll preview the men's and women's basketball game coming up on the weekend. We'll give you bold predictions, all that and more on Santos and the sidekick. 6.30 airtime, 7 o'clock, ETSU Wofford. Tonight. Back Friday. Tonight. Santos sidekick. Tonight. Buccaneers Network. See ya.